Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Ruth. The Old Testament book of Ruth is where we are. This series of messages is such that we are going book by book through the Bible in summary fashion. We're summarizing each of the books so that over the course of the journey, we gain a landscape picture of how the Bible holds together and what it has to say to us today. The book of Ruth is where we are, and here's the key concept today. Faith and hope are the pathways to love. Love is the pathway to legacy. Love is the pathway to legacy. The book of Ruth is a book about love, a wonderful story of compassion and love. It is one of only two books of the Bible named after a woman, and it is the only book in the Bible named after a Gentile. The book of Ruth, the events takes place during the period of the judges in Israel that we studied last week. And in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, as it was uh, in, in the Hebrew language, the book of Judges and the book of Ruth are actually one book. It's the overarching story of this period of Judges, first a national picture and then a picture of what one family was going through during this time. And you remember from last week that this was a time of difficulty and decay in the culture. And like all good stories, Ruth is a book filled with heartache and loss and fear, but also a healthy dose of love and devotion and honor. I've read that during the time when Benjamin Franklin was the ambassador of the United States to France, he joined a club called the Infidels Club. The Infidels Club functioned as kind of a highbrow, snobby book club. And they prided themselves in discovering and reading little-known works of great literature. And they had a disdain for the Bible. They looked down their noses at the Word of God. And so Benjamin Franklin, at one of the meetings, it was his time to share. And so he took the book of Ruth and he changed all the character names and he altered some of the details and he read out, out loud this book to the members of the Infidels Club. They praised it at one, at was one of the best short stories ever written. And he loved telling them that it was from the Bible that they hated. <laughs> it's a good story, but it's more than that. Let's begin in chapter 1, verse 1, and get a sense of the setting. It says, In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech... Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Machlan and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her sons and her husband. We'll remember from our looking at the book of Judges last week that these were days of great struggle in Israel. There was political turmoil. In the midst of the political turmoil, there was war. And when you have political turmoil and war, it always brings famine. 
And that was exactly what was happening in the land of Israel in this time of the judges. The farmers couldn't plant their crops. They didn't have the opportunity to harvest the crops. And so the cycles of the reaping and the planting and the harvest went by without any food being planted. And soon starvation was rampant. Political turmoil and war bring famine. It did in these days and it does today. I want to show you a photo that's just a couple of weeks old. This is a picture that was taken in Syria just a few weeks ago. Look at the devastation in the buildings behind these people. These people live in those buildings. And they came out en masse in this situation, putting themselves at great grave danger. And you know why? Because this photographer is standing in the bed of a truck that is giving out free food. These people are starving to death. Political turmoil plus war brings famine. And that's the result. It's still the result, and it was the result in Bethlehem in the time of the judges. And Elimelech decided, I need to get out of here. i got to get my family out of here. We're not going to be able to survive. And so he crossed the Jordan River into the land of Moab. You need to picture Moab as today's southernmost reaches of the nation Jordan. And that's where they lived. And time goes by and Elimelech dies. And his sons marry Moabite women, but they too die. And they leave Naomi and her two Moabite daughters-in-law in a situation of desperation. Not only are they heartache, in heartache because of the deaths of their husbands, but they have no source of income. In this culture, a woman could not go out and get a job. There was no way for them to put bread on the table. Naomi can see no hope for the future here in Moab, a, a foreign country, and, but she hears a rumor that back in Bethlehem in her hometown, the famine has ended. And so she decides to go back to Bethlehem, her hometown. Go down to verse 7, and we pick up the story. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back. Each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Notice with me that both of these daughters-in-law started back towards Bethlehem. And both of the daughters-in-law were confronted with a decision. Naomi says, doesn't make sense for you to follow me all the way back to Bethlehem. Go back into, into your mother's home. Start again. Stay in Moab. Maybe things will work out for you. And they had a choice to make. And Orpah makes the choice that makes sense according to human logic. She chooses a familiar place and a familiar people and familiar gods, the gods of the Moabites. And her name disappears from history. But Ruth chooses to step out in faith. Ruth chooses a new people and a new place. But more than that, she chooses the one true God, the God of Israel. And her name makes history, not only here, but in the events that will follow. And so Ruth makes a commitment that is indeed the centerpiece of this book, the most quoted verses from this book. Chapter 1, verse 16 is where we read it. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Ruth is saying, I am all in. 
I am all in in this relationship and I am all in in this pursuit of this God of Israel. And so as the first chapter ends, we have the two women returning to Bethlehem, but now their roles are reversed. Now it is Naomi who's home and it is Ruth who is the refugee. And Naomi comes back into her village where people knew her, people recognized her, people received her, they welcomed her as Naomi, but Naomi says, I'm going to change my name. Naomi means pleasant. I'm not going to go by that name anymore. I want you to call me Mara. Mara means bitter. My life has turned bitter. But we know that things are about to get better for Mrs. Bitter. (laughs) So as we read on, we see how Ruth's devotion helps Naomi. And we learn not only how we are to be devoted to our Savior in that spiritual lesson, but we also learn a lesson about human compassion. We learn that human compassion means sticking with someone, even in the tough times. Naomi said she was, uh, Ruth said she would stick with Naomi no matter what happens. And she models that compassion hangs in there. One of the failures of our marketing age is that we're quick to care about causes, but we're also quick to forget about those causes when the new cause comes along. That's one reason why I think the local church is such a ministry of compassion is because we are planted in this community. We are planted in this city. We care about this city. We are here for the long haul. Every week, every month, every year, we reach out with compassion to those people who are around us. And we care about one another, being together week after week, month after month, year after year, demonstrating compassion over the long haul. That's what a family of faith is meant to be. And Ruth demonstrates that in her care for Naomi. She also shows us you are a compassionate person when you cross a boundary out of your comfort zone. She says, where you die, I will die. She knows this is not going to be easy. This is not going to be just kind of a walk in the park, but I'm here to take on the difficult things. Jesus reminds us to do that in our walk with him. In Luke 9, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He doesn't invite us to a life of ease, but he invites us to be compassionate people, recognizing that sometimes that will be tough. It's really not too much of a secret in how you can affect someone else's life for the better, and that is share your life with them, even if the going gets tough. Ruth is saying that to Naomi. And thirdly, she shows us that you are a compassionate person when you speak the words of encouragement. Sometimes we just need to hear the words, the words of encouragement and hope. You're not in this alone, is what Ruth was saying. I will not abandon you. No matter what happens, you'll have somebody beside you. Those are encouraging words. Proverbs 25, 11 says, A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Have you ever thought what the, the writer is saying there? He's saying this is wealth. This is beauty when I find someone speaking words of encouragement just at the right time, just what I need to hear. And Ruth is giving that gift to Naomi. And so they arrive in Bethlehem. They have no plan. They have no hope. They have no help, obviously. What they're looking for is grace. And on the way, they must have had a discussion, something along the lines of, well, where are we going to go? I don't know. Who are we going to stay with? I don't know. What are we going to do? 
I don't know. See, Naomi doesn't have much of a plan, but Naomi has a memory. And her memory is this. God in the law of the land has built in provision for the poor. I remember that. The law is called the gleaning law. And it's given in Leviticus 19. Here's what it says. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. See, the gleanings law is planned in efficiency from the heart of God. The gleaning law is God making provision for the poor, not through a government agency, not through a handout. The gleaning law is the way that those who are poor can walk into the fields of those who are rich, confident that the rich will leave a little something behind, that the edges will still be there, the corners will not be plowed out, and the grapes, if they're dropped, will be let lay there so the poor can come behind and find sustenance for their life. Naomi, as she was walking back to Bethlehem, must have asked herself the question, I wonder if they're obeying that law. And when she gets to Bethlehem, she sees that they are, that it's possible. And so the women have a conversation in, Luke, I mean, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out, she ended up in a field of one of her relatives, just coincidentally. Have you ever wondered how these coincidences come about? Have you been able to look back in your life and say something similar to, as it turned out, I was in the right place at the right time to talk to the right person who helped me with that next step. As it turned out, I was late, I was delayed, and so I wasn't part of that thing that happened there that would have been such a tragedy. I was planning to go, but I didn't go, and I'm glad I wasn't there, as it turned out. All these as-it-turned-out moments, these coincidences, it's the hand of God working anonymously. As it turned out, she turned out to be in the, in the field of Boaz. There's a coincidence that made history on March 1st, 1950, in Beatrice Nebraska. Now, in between the two services, we have somebody who's from Beatrice, Nebraska, and I was told that I am saying it wrong. It should be Beatrice, Nebraska. Who knew? But in any event, <laughs> at whatever place that is, in March 1st, 1950, Wednesday night, was choir practice night at the Westside Baptist Church. The choir practice was supposed to start at 7.15. 7.20, because of a gas leak, the church blew to smithereens. But nobody was hurt, as it turned out. You know why? Everybody was late for choir practice that night. Everybody, including the choir director. The piano player overslept. The one high school girl had a math problem to do. She couldn't get it done. And she was the ride for two others. So they were, they were late. There was a person whose dinner went long, a person whose car wouldn't start. Somebody had a flat tire. Over and over and over and over again, an empty church blew up that night as it turned out. 
Sometimes you see the hand of God working anonymously. And as it turned out, we see the hand of God here. Boaz notices Ruth. Now, he's already heard of her. Bethlehem's not a big place. By reputation, he knows that she has come into town. But now he's impressed with her personally. So he tells her, listen, don't worry about going from field to field, trying to get in all the edges. Just stay in my field, and we'll make sure that you're provided for. He couches his farmhands, maybe, you know, drop a little bit more than usual. And in chapter 2, verse 15, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, do not embarrass her. In other words, he's saying, even if she takes advantage of my generosity and oversteps her bounds and doesn't stay back with the gleanings, but rather inserts herself right into the main harvest and is putting everything into her own basket, even if she does that, you let her do it. And by now, the workers are catching on that the boss has a thing for little Miss Moab. <laughs> so Ruth goes home that night with an overflowing basket, and Naomi looks and says, where in the world did you work? These must be the worst pickers ever. Look at all that was left over. And so we pick up the story in verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She figures it out. Then Ruth uh, told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen, redeemers. Now, the idea of a kinsman redeemer shows how far our culture is from the culture of the ancient uh, Israel. We really can't imagine anything like it today. The kinsman redeemer had the role of protecting the financial interests of the family, particularly protecting the land holdings of the family. See, back in Deuteronomy chapter 25, God, through Moses, tells the Israelites that if a man dies and he's childless, thus without heirs to inherit the family plot, the family farm, then the widow is to be married to the man's brother to produce heirs who will inherit the land, but those children will be considered the children of the dead brother. In other words, the direct inheritors so that the land will stay in the family. And this was done because the Israelites understood that they did not own the land that the land belonged to God, and God had entrusted the land to them as stewards, and he had trusted certain plots of land for certain families, and they were to work hard to make sure that those families could stay in that land that God has given to them as the inheritance. But the question comes up, well, what if there's no brothers? And that's where the kinsman redeemer comes in. The kinsman can, redeemer can step in and take that exact same role as the near relative. And so that he marries the widow and the offspring of that marriage is considered to be the son of the dead husband. Naomi remembers that. And Naomi begins to plot a plan in chapter 3. Follow along chapter 3 verse 1. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you be well provided for? Is not Boaz with whose servant girls you have been a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, take note of the place where he's lying. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. 
And I'm going to stop reading there because some of you are getting nervous. <laughs> it's sounding a little risque here. But nothing inappropriate happens, all uh, right, because uh, uh, it's the way of demonstrating the interest in, in this uh, kinsman-redeemer scenario. Read down to verse 8. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying on his feet. Who are you, he asked. It's dark after all, right? I am your servant Ruth, he said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. And in so doing, he demonstrated his willingness to step into that role. Boaz is genuinely in love with Ruth. But when he does this, he remembers that there is a closer relative, one who has a prior claim. And so in chapter 4, Boaz deals fairly with that relative. We see him call a town meeting. The elders of the town are present and he presents the pros and the cons of fulfilling the responsibility of kinsman redeemer. He says, you know, there's a land up for grabs, a piece of land. This land is supposed to stay in the family of, Boaz, uh, family of uh, Elimelech. And Boaz says, it can be yours to be used for a while. You can derive profit from it for a while. But in order to get that, you have to marry this Gentile woman. And if you have a child with this Gentile woman, the land goes back and becomes the property of that offspring. And that offspring is considered the grandson of Naomi and Elimelech, not your own son. It doesn't stay in your family. Well, when it's explained like that, the deal doesn't look so good to the nearer relative. And in verse 8 of chapter 4, we see the exchange. The contract is made. It says, So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. In those days, when you gave somebody the sandal in the context of a real estate deal, that, that was the contract, you're making the deal. Makes sense, right? Sandals walk on the ground, we're talking about ground. Kind of a visual cue to what's happening here. And Boaz steps in and he becomes the kinsman redeemer. And as time goes by, soon a little baby is born. Go to verse 16 of chapter 4. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The line of Boaz is continued, but soon it will be overshadowed and called the line of David. They make a family in a little town called Bethlehem, and that town will be called the city of David. And Bethlehem has gone from a place of famine to fruitfulness. And if the author of the story just stopped there, it would have been a wonderful ending to the overall story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, Grandma Naomi playing with the child. But then the author does something weird. He tacks on a genealogy of ten names. Look at the last few, starting in verse 21. Solomon, the brother of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. Now, that's a weird way to end the book. It just stops right there. But the reason he does that is because by ending the book that way, he shows you what the book is really about. The book is really about how God is governing the affairs of men. Remember last week I told you that you can read history on a number of different levels. You can read history on the level of the personalities, just the people who make history, or the people groups, the nations, ups and downs in history, or you can notice the patterns that happen in history, or you can read for the purpose of history. 
And it is only those who believe in the one true God who is guiding hand, is overarching history, who read for purpose. But the author of the book of Ruth wants you to read for purpose. He wants you to see how God has always been working out his purpose, even in these dark days. He looks back from a position of the the, uh, monarchy, when the kings are in place, and he says, God is in charge, so surrender to his sovereignty. Even in the days of the chaos, even in the days of the judges, when nothing seemed to be working out, God was already working the details that would bring about our good king, David. And we as New Testament readers see that, say, God is in charge. He's working out the details. Even in this story of love and romance, this Gentile woman becomes an ancestor of the true king and Messiah, the eternal one, the king in David's line. It shows that our lives are meant to connect to God's great purpose. Even the ordinary things, when you are walking in obedience, you connect to something great that God is doing. God is sovereign. Secondly, God is gracious. Nobody here earned any of this. The Moabites were the enemies of the Israelites. It was the Moabites who tried to hire Balaam to curse the Israelites. They were the sworn enemies. But here, this one Moabite woman says, your God will be my God. When we turn our hearts to God, he always responds with grace. God is gracious. Surrender to his grace. And God is redeemer. He is working for our salvation. Ruth saw the reality of that one true God. Orpah, her sister-in-law, started along those roads, but turned back and she disappears. But Ruth crosses into the unknown and by faith turns to God and so finds redemption. We must follow by faith. The Redeemer is a kinsman. Jesus is our kinsman. He took on flesh. He represented us on the cross. He took our sins to that cross so that we can be forgiven. And he is our kinsman redeemer today when we turn to him by faith. All of that is woven into this book. And the writer makes the point. God is working in the affairs of men. So in the dark days of the judges and still today, when we turn to the Lord, there is a way of salvation.